Hello! Welcome to Cup of Taboo, where I discuss all things considered taboo. Anything your conservative and quiet grandparents would pull their noses up at. I'm your host Tyler, and I love talking about weird and dodgy things. Today, I'll be talking about Keith Hunter Jesperson, otherwise known as the Happy Face Killer. I hope you are ready for your weekly dose of strange, dark and terrible, served in your cup of taboo. Warning, the following podcast contains content that some listeners might find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. But seriously, this one is kind of quite disturbing. So if you get triggered easily, please note this is your warning. There's murder, there's rape, a lot of bad stuff. So I went to Joburg in December to visit family and whatnot. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to read a book while I'm on the plane because, you know, improving one's life and whatnot. And, you know, instead of finding a nice fun book to read and instead of listening to music, napping or watching a movie like a normal person, I read a book about a serial killer named Keith Hunter Jesperson. And it got me hooked immediately. It's called I, The Creation of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. It's really good. I basically finished it in that one flight and then like got going down this rabbit hole with research and I was like, yes, this is my next episode. I'm so keen to do it. And and then I got distracted with other kinds of episodes and, and here we are, three months later, and I'm finally doing it. I had never heard of this guy until I read that book and oh boy, is he a bad egg. But, you know, I'm going to talk about him still. Also, let me know, please. Do you guys prefer this style of episode where I sit down and tell you about something taboo? Or do you prefer the more conversational kind of episodes? I'm curious. Let me know on Instagram at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. So, as I said earlier, a lot of the information I got for this episode is from the book called I, The Creation of a Serial Killer by Jack Olson. And basically what he does is he interviews, like he has interviews with Keith and the people around Keith and he also like has his own take on the things. It's very interesting, super interesting, highly recommend it. It's an interesting read. I wouldn't say it's a fun read because the content, the, like the the stuff, the, the content is just, it's it's tough to read about. It's rough. But okay, let me get into it. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on the 6th of April 1955 to Liz and Gladys Jesperson in a place called Chilliwack in British Columbia. If I say that I wanted to name my future, do- future dog Chilliwack, like, would, th- would that be weird? Would it be okay? Imagine. Come Chilliwack. Chilli. Oh, it's cute. I would totally do it. Anyway, Keith was the middle child. He had two brothers and two sisters of either on either side of him. And they were said to be like a normal family. Keith's father was a very tough man who worked very hard and he also worked his sons very hard. His name was Les, as I said earlier, and he was an alcoholic, according to Keith. He was also said to be rather cruel towards his sons, and in particular, Keith. 
The family moved to Sela, Sela, Washington, when Keith was 12 years old, and Keith was not really very happy about that. He he loved it in Chilliwack, and then when they moved to Washington, he was like, ugh. And like the thing with Keith is he was a huge, well, he is a huge human being. He's massive. And even from when he was young, he was a big guy. And this led kids to teasing him. They called him Igor or Ig for short, because, you know, kids can be super cruel. And Keith took everything super personally. And, you know, he didn't really, he didn't like the fact that people would tease him. He felt that everyone was against him, even his parents. Like, he just felt like the whole world was against him. His grades in school were not great, and he really struggled. They considered holding him back, but then they realized that he couldn't see. So he got glasses and eventually started doing slightly better and eventually managed to actually complete school, but he never went to college. Just to let you know how big he is, as an adult, he stands at six foot six, and in his prime, you know, in his 30s, 20s, 30s, he weighed 250 pounds. He was also a very strong man because he did some kind of martial arts or boxing and also like he was worked hard his dad worked him hard like manual labor when he was young he was incredibly cruel to animals he killed them in the most vicious and terrifying ways and he said that his father was also cruel to animals especially cats and Keith's dad kind of hired Keith to get rid of stray ca- like cats and animals on the plot. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's a little bit iffy. He would do really terrible things. I'm not going to say what he did because it's really... that That's the part of the book that really upset me, like, the most. The, the description of what he did to the animals. It was absolutely disgusting. But remember what I said in the Ed Kemper episode. Uh, a lot of these people, these serial killers target cats because they have a feminine aspect to them i'm just saying but anyway when he was a child he also managed to beat up a kid named martin who was a kid that used to bully him and he said that he would have killed him if his father hadn't pulled him off and then another one of his acquaintances thought it would be funny to try and drown him so he decided to try and get him back by trying to drown him in a public pool but a lifeguard pulled him off so just so you know he did try to commit murder twice when he was a child he said that his aim was to kill these boys so just just know it didn't just happen it 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 was in him from when he was young when he was in high school, he was in the wrestling team. It was not boxing or martial arts. It was wrestling. Anyway, he was in the wrestling team and they had to do that thing where you climb up the rope to the roof. And he really struggled with this because, like I said, he's a big guy. He's heavy. But one day he managed to do it. He climbed, managed to get to the top. But then as he got to the top, the rope actually came loose from the roof and he fell 25 feet and landed on his head. At the same time, he also injured his foot which gave him like even more of a weird walk and this led to him being teased by a lot more people so there's a possible head injury i'm just saying that maybe could have led to some of the stuff they didn't really go into that so i'm just it's there when keith was out of school he married a lady named rose and they had three kids but this marriage didn't last long. It it he was not in a, it wasn't a happy marriage for him. It was kind of a okay, we're done with school. We have to get married and have children now, and and that's what they did. They got divorced in 1990 when Keith was 35. So you know, it was actually quite a, a decently long marriage because they met in 1974. So it's not bad. 
Keith said that he didn't want to really marry her, but he was basically forced into it by his family and her. So, you know, he was kind of like, ah, he said on his wedding day, he kind of wanted to run away. But they, they still ended up getting married on the 2nd of August in 1975. So 1975 to 1990, that's 15 years of being together. So it's not bad, actually. I mean, I said it wasn't a long marriage, but that's pretty long. So I'm going to now just jump straight into his victims because there's a lot. There's eight and they it's 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 a really terrible story. Keith's first kill happened on the 21st of January in 1990. His victim was Tonya Bennett, who was a 23-year-old woman. I could not, for the life of me, find out when her birthday was. There was not a lot of information on her online, but what I did find out is that she was considered developmentally challenged and incredibly friendly. So what she would do is she used to hang out at the bars, she would play pool, and she would just like be like super happy, friendly, loving towards everyone. And on this day in particular... Keith was bored. He went to the pub, I think it was called the B&I Tavern, for a beer, and to play some pool. I mean, he was quite good at pool, so he would be able to stay there long, like, with hardly any money, because the winner, the winner kept the table and the loser would pay for the next round. Well, the next person would pay for the next round, you know what I'm saying? So he was a bit of a hustler. So he would go there, pay for one round, and then keep winning so that he could carry on playing. So while he was there, he noticed Tonya. She was a young, pretty girl, playing pool with two men, and then her and Keith made eyes at each other. And eventually, like, because he sort of looked at her, she sort of looked at him, they had, like, a little smile, she ran over to Keith, a complete stranger, and she just gave him a hug. This was, like, the kind of person that she was. She was incredibly loving and bubbly and happy. Keith said that she reminded him of his ex-wife, Rose, but she was prettier. She asked him to join the pool game that she was playing, but Keith kind of declined and he was like, nah, I'm rather just going to go home. So the one thing that I picked up while I was reading the book was they had the two sections. So one is basically basically Keith's words and the other is in the words of the journalist. So when Keith talks, he seems to have an idea that he's owed things. He feels very sorry for himself a lot of the time, and it's very frustrating. The way that he talks about how the world is just so hard for him, it's it's very irritating. And on this night in particular, he felt that he was owed something. So when he got home that evening, all he could think of was this pretty girl who hugged him. And then somehow, his dark fantasies kicked in. He decided he needed to go back to the bar to pick up Tonya and have sex with her. He was like, this is what I want to do. But he wanted it to be rape. And then he wanted to keep her as a sex slave. The fact that she was developmentally challenged turned him on even more because he's sick. So from just chilling, he was like, actually, you know what? I'm going to go get me a sex slave. That, I mean, what? How does one's mind even go there? But anyway, so he drove back to the bar and as he arrived, she was leaving. He asked if she would like to go for some food and a drink. And she was like, yeah, cool. That sounds good. And then he lied and said that he had left his wallet at home and asked if it would be fine if they quickly stopped there to go fetch it. She said, yeah, fine. And when they got to the house, he told her to come inside because he needed to shave and like get ready. And then she went inside and he locked the door behind her. Before I carry on, if you ever meet a man and he asks you out to dinner but then suddenly realizes that he doesn't have his wallet, do not go back to his place to get it. Run in the other direction. 
people do not forget their wallets at home. I'm just saying. Just be safe out there, please. So, back at Keith's place, he tried to kiss Tonya on the neck, and she then tried to run away. So he grabbed her and forced her into having sex with him. She eventually said something to him which it offended his delicate little ego and he saw red. She said something along the lines of just get it over and done with, pretty much. So he got so angry that he punched her in the face to knock her out. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to knock her out and keep her as a sex slave. But she didn't pass out. And Keith was a boxer I knew it was a boxer. Keith was a boxer and, you know, he had knocked out grown men with the punches that that he had used on her. So he hit her again and again and again. And then he said that at that point he just couldn't stop. And when he eventually realized what he was doing, he had completely broken her face with his punches. Just to the point where she wasn't even recognizable. So he decided that he had to kill her so that he wouldn't go to prison for assault. He strangled her, and he recalls it taking a lot longer than he thought it would, which a lot of these people seem to say when it's their first kill. And, you know, especially the big guys, they're often like, oh my gosh, that took so much longer than I thought it would. They have these really unrealistic expectations of death. So after about five minutes of him choking Tonya Bennett, she died. Keith wondered whether they would be able to get fingerprints from the metal on her zip or on the buttons on her, you know, the part of the pants that you do up. So what he did is he actually cut that off and he threw it in the fire because he was like, oh no, I don't want them to have any fingerprints on me. Like, uh uh-uh. So then he decided, Flip, I have to do something with the body, but I I must keep cool. I got to keep my cool. So he first had a cup of coffee, then he dressed her partially. And he went back to the bar and had a beer to establish some sort of alibi. And he made sure to talk to the lady at the bar, some patrons, and then he left alone at 9.30pm. He then went to go and try and find a place to dump the body. When he got back to the house, he tied a rope around her neck to make it easier to drag her body because it was starting to stiffen up at this point. And then he shoved her in his car and drove her to a ravine. And there he dropped her body down an embankment. He didn't cover the body with anything. He threw her Walkman, which she carried everywhere with her, out of his window. And then he threw her purse, which he stole $2 from, into a bush about two miles further. A student came across Tanya's body the next day in the bushes. They had no idea who she was as there was no ID on the body. And eventually, after releasing some details to the press, Tanya's mother, who had reported her missing, went to the police station and confirmed that it was indeed her daughter that was murdered so viciously. Strangely enough, a few weeks after the murder of Tonya, a lady named Laverne Pavlinak called the police and claimed that her boyfriend, John Sosnovsky, was the one who had killed Tonya Bennett. Like, she she was like, hi, listen, my boyfriend killed Tonya Bennett. And they were like, okay, why do you say this? And she said, no, she just knows it, whatever, whatever. And then there was this whole hoo-ha where she then suddenly found a zipper in his house or in her house in a bag that was his and they were like this doesn't match the jeans so then she said I'm sorry I lied what actually happened was he phoned me and he was there with the body so I helped him dump the body and they were still not really believing it they were like um okay show us where you got where you dumped the body and she pretty much pointed to basically the right spot And then they were still not like 100% convinced. So she then went as far as actually implicating herself. And she said, okay, I lied to you guys. 
I was the one holding the rope while he beat her up. So they said, okay. And apparently she was incredibly convincing. She was in her late 50s, Laverne. And they eventually, they were like, okay, we're going to arrest you guys. So the thing with good old Laverne is that she was in the super abusive relationship with John. And she thought that the best way out of it would be to falsely accuse him and herself of murder. That way she would be able to get out of the relationship. It's a weird thought process, but she thought that this was the way to go. So they were convicted for the murder of Tonya Bennett because, you know, policing was great back in the 90s. And this meant that Keith, the actual murderer, was free to carry on with his sick ways. So if you want to watch how this all unfolded from the police side, you can go watch Catching Killers on Netflix, season one, episodes three and four, I think. But what they do there is they have interviews with the cops that investigated the case and they play the confessions of Laverne and John. And it's interesting to see it from that side, from from the policing side. They really thought that it was them, but obviously it wasn't. It was Keith. So that put a bit of a a spin on things because two months after killing Tonya, Keith was kind of out of work. He managed to get like a, a peace job as a construction worker in Sacramento. And on his way to Sacramento, he bumped into a lady who was unnamed, who was breastfeeding her child and also very drunk <laughs> because, you know, the 90s. And he offered her a ride and then forced her to give him oral sex. So she tried to stop him and eventually when he came, she freaked out. So then she was like, no, what the hell? And she was like threatening rape. So he was like, oh no, this is not okay. So he like looped his arm around her neck and he tried to break her neck but he couldn't get the right angle so she just begged him not to hurt her baby at this point which made Keith like stop for a second and think ah crap if I kill her I've got to kill the baby and he was like very it was a hard no to baby baby killing in his head so he was like no you know what just leave so she got out of the car and then Keith saw her walking so he was like okay no it's cold let me drive you to the spot so he picked so she got back in the car he dropped her off and he carried on so this this bit him in the ass a bit later and (laughs) obviously like that day she went and reported the assault and Keith was arrested that night so he spun the story that basically he didn't do anything wrong she sucked him off got mad that he came in her mouth and then you know because it was so cramped in the car he didn't have any place to put his arms so they were like resting on her neck Uh uh-huh but somehow the cops kind of believed him they took his photo his fingerprints and that was that was it they believed him over her because he was really good at coming up with these stupid stories so keith said at this point he had two sides he called it mr nice guy and demon Demon wanted to kill the lady, but Mr. Mr. Nice Guy saw her walking with the baby and decided he just he couldn't. So after that, he worked in Sacramento for a few months and then went back to Portland where he saw his ex-girlfriend and they got back together. Um, one thing about Keith is that he loved sex. That, that is all he thought about. And he really made all his decisions with the little head between his legs, not the one on his neck. That That was not the head that he made decisions with. At this point, his son from his marriage got injured, so they decided to move to Spokane. 
because he decided he needed to be closer to his kids he loved his kids he absolutely loved his kids like he would do any for anything for them so at this point he started doing trucking work again he was a trucker a truck driver and about a month after Laverne and John were found guilty Keith was like what I mean how did they find them guilty I'm the one who killed Tonya and he, he had this weird urge to let the world know that it was he who had done it. So while driving through Montana, he went to the, the bathroom. While sitting on the toilet, he had a pen with him and he wrote on the wall, I killed Tanya Bennett, January 21, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and I loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame and I'm free. He signed this message with a happy face. Nothing came from it, and this irritated him, so he did it again in Oregon. And again, nothing came from it. So a year and a half after Tonya, Keith was starting to get antsy. You know, he was like, I want to do that again. I want to, I want to, I want to do it again. That was kind of fun for me, which is disgusting. So he decided that he would have to do it to a hooker, because it's easy to get a hooker as a trucker, and also, then there's no ties back to him. So he did manage to get one hooker into his truck and he did rape her but he you know at that point was like ah oh, just go get get lost and she pepper sprayed him in the face and he was like ah oh, I should have killed her but he didn't so in 1992 Keith was busy doing some repairs to his truck at a brake check area on I-15 near San Bernardino and a young woman asked for a ride she was described by Keith as a young woman with big boobs and pretty enough. She told Keith that her name was Claudia and that she was headed to Phoenix. On the road, he bought her cigarettes and food and she asked for drugs and Keith was very against drugs. So he was like, no, no, no drugs. But he bought her the cigarettes and the food and while they were on the road, he forced her to have sex with him a few times and she kind of just stayed with him instead of running away because I think that at this point she was kind of like I need to get to where I need to get to and eventually she threatened him and told him to give him money she told him to give her money or she would report him for rape and at this point Keith again saw red he got really mad so he bound her in the back of his truck and he pushed his fist into her neck until she passed out he raped her a few more times and then decided he would play what he called the killing game or the death game with her and this is where he would choke her until she passed out let her wake up and choke her again over and over this excited keith to no end like he loved this little sick game it it got him turned on kind of thing it's disgusting eventually she passed passed away and keith you know as she died he got another hard on he thought about molesting her body but decided against it and he went to like into a truck stop with her dead body in his truck he had an iced tea to calm himself down no remorse he then drove along the interstate towards arizona and eventually stopped in a place called blythe and he turned onto the i-95 and drove for about eight miles until he found a place to stop he dumped the body in the canyon and covered it with some tumbleweed about one month after he murdered the lady that he called claudia he was on his way to Fresno, California, with a truck full of meat. He stopped at a rest stop in Turlock, California, to have a bit of a nap before carrying on. He said that a pretty blonde asked him if he wanted to party, so he grabbed her boobs and said no. She was what the truckers call a lot lizard, 
a prostitute that mostly services truckers. She was a bit pushy with him and he told her to go away because he was tired and that, you know, maybe later they could have a good time. So he went to sleep and like in, in the trucks, they've got this like little bed area. They call, He called it the coffin, like where you would like close the curtains and it had a bed for the truckers to sleep in. So he went to sleep. He didn't lock his truck while he slept. It's America, am I right? And he went to sleep for a few hours, but in the middle of his sleep, his daughter's truck flew open and that same pretty blonde climbed in. So this woke Keith up and like he got super mad super quickly so as she like jumped in the car he grabbed her by the throat and pushed her onto his bed and he squeezed her neck and ended up killing her pretty much instantly no planning or enjoyment for him he was very upset that like this happened so quickly and he was just like ah so he sped out of the rest stop not like wanting anyone to realize what he had done and he drove south so nobody can say why this poor girl jumped into his truck that night it was probably i mean it was the biggest mistake she had ever made and he doesn't even know why she did but he stopped at a place called blueberry hill parking lot cafe <laughs> he blueberry hill cafe parking lot and he climbed into his sleeper area where her body still was she had urinated all over his bed and you know he wasn't really sure if she was dead or not so he carried her body to a pile of rubble and rubbish under a tree on the edge of the parking lot and he threw her on the ground and to make sure that she was absolutely dead he stood on her neck for a while he also then covered her body with some tumbleweed and left her there her name was cynthia lynn rose he didn't even get her name after this murder keith was becoming quite paranoid understandably he was convinced that everyone knew he was a killer but nobody did. The fact that he was constantly moving and that he had no personal connections to any of his victims made it incredibly difficult to even connect the crimes. I mean, at this point, the cops, the different jurisdictions, different methods of kill, like they didn't even realize that this was one person doing this. So after a few months and no consequences, he then started to feel invincible, which is very dangerous. At this point, Laverne and John had spent three years in prison for the murder of Tonya Bennett while Keith was free, killing as he wished. In November of 1992, he was delivering meat again, and his last stop was going to be in Salem. He stopped at the Burns Brothers truck stop on the I-5 because he had the urge for female company. He knew that there was a hooker there that he liked named Laurie Pentland. She was a young girl between 23 to 26 and Keith claimed that she was a lot of fun and you know he had used her a few times. When he eventually met up with her she told him that her prices had gone up to $40 so he agreed and they had sex for an hour. When she was getting dressed she told Keith that he needed to pay an extra $40 for the long service. He said no and then she threatened him. And as I said earlier Keith did not do well with threats. He told her that she had made a mistake and that he was going to strangle her and she kind of said well do it then. And he did. He pushed her onto the bed and he pushed his fist into her neck. She passed out and he started to get excited. When she started to come to, Keith started playing with her. The death game, again. But he was perverted and he would start touching her and like playing with her every time she like came to. And out of instinct, she would just start like trying to touch him back just to like try and get him to stop. And then he would make her pass out again. And this carried on and on until he decided it was time to end her life. Once she passed away, Keith went into the truck stop and he had a cup of coffee. 
because you know yeah gotta gotta rehydrate he returned and he then masturbated on the body and he then decided okay flip gotta get rid of the body now he left the truck stop and headed towards salem he stopped at gi joe's parking lot and he decided that that would be the perfect place for her body he stopped the truck next to the fence and he pulled her out by her hair and he left her next to the fence covered in leaves he then drove down the road parked and went to sleep i mean how do you just go to sleep after you've done that to someone like it's it's unthinkable to me but anyway four months after he killed laurie he was on his way to his next job it was a rainy day march he pulled into the petro truck stop in corning california and went into the cafe to get something to eat he said that he saw a girl who was looking wet and hungry kind of homeless and for some reason he just had to have her He bought her some food and told her about the fact that he was a trucker and so on and so on and she told him that her name was Cindy. He told her that he was heading to Salinas and she asked if if he could take her to Sacramento, to which he agreed. They stopped at a place called William's Rest Area where they had sex and after that Keith then told her that he was going to kill her, then he raped her and strangled her, playing his sick little death game until she died. He dumped her body in the bushes behind some rocks and then he went back to the truck stop and slept again. Like I said, this guy is sick. Absolutely disgusting. A few months later, Keith met Julie Winningham at a truck stop in Oregon. The two got on like a house on fire. Keith really liked her and after chatting for a while, he asked if she would join him on his next trip. She agreed to do so. He made his delivery and then had a full extra day where he took her out and he spoiled her and they just had a really good time. She had one small problem though, she was into drugs and Keith was not about that life. But anyway, her and Keith dated for almost a year on and off and she kept asking him for money and Keith sort of realized that all she wanted was money, pot and a new car, but he was madly in love with her. However, her constant nagging eventually led to the two breaking up and going their separate ways. She's important later on. Julie is very important. So the thing with Keith and drugs is when he was young, his father had an open policy about booze. They could drink as much as they wanted as long as it was at home. You know, takes the mystery out of alcohol and all that kind of stuff. I think all of our parents tried that at some point. But he was very strict on drugs, absolutely against them. And Keith carried that sentiment into his later life. He was like, no, drugs are bad, but murder is fine. Obviously ridiculous after breaking it off with julie keith was pissed he just wanted some kind of recognition and he saw something about like laverne and john in the news the the two that were in jail for his crime and he was like you know what i'm gonna write a note to washington county courthouse and it said the following i killed miss bennett jan 20 1990 and left her one and a half miles east of lateral falls on the switchback I used a half-inch soft nylon rope burnt on one end, frayed cut on the other, and tied it about her, around her neck. Her face, her teeth, protruded from her mouth. Death was caused by my right fist pushed into her throat until she quit moving. Threw her Walkman away, her purse, two dollars, I threw into the Sandy River. I cut the buttons off her jeans. I had raped her before and after her death. I left her facing downhill and her jeans down by her ankles. I did not know any of them. 
there was no reaction to this letter, so he wrote a letter to the Oregonian newspaper that went as follows. I would like to tell my story. I am a good person at times. I always wanted to be liked. I have been married and divorced with children. I didn't really want to be married, but it happened. I have read your paper and enjoyed it a lot. I always have wanted to be noticed like Paul Harvey, front page, etc. So I started something I don't know how to stop. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her, first, her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. This turned me on. I got a high. Then panic set in. Where to put the body? I drove out to the Sandy River and threw her purse and walkman away, and I drove the scenic road past the falls. I went back home and dragged her out to the car. I want to know that it was my crime, so I tied a half-inch soft white rope cut on one end and burned on the other, around her neck. I drove her to a switchback on the scenic road about one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls, dragged her downhill. Her pants were around her knees because I had cut her buttons off. They found her the next day. I wanted her to be found. I felt real bad and afraid that I would be caught, but a man and a woman got blamed for it. My conscience is getting to me now. She was my first and I thought I would not do it again, but I was wrong. There was no reaction to this letter either. Keith did not know, but the journalist who received the letter was now working very hard at trying to verify the facts. So Keith sent another letter to the Oregonian. It said, My last victim was a street person. It was raining in Corning, California. She was wet and I offered a ride to Sacramento, California. I stopped at a rest area near Williams and I had her. I put her body on or near a pile of rocks about 50 yards north of Highway 152 westbound, about 20 miles from Santanella. It was getting hard to trust my inner self. I kept arguing with my conscience. I had to get away from long haul trucking. Victims are too easily found. So I quit and found a good job driving where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way. The truck has a bold name on the side so it is easily recognized. I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again and I want to protect my family from grief. I would tear it apart. I feel bad but I will not turn myself in. I am not stupid. I do know what would happen to me if I did. In a, a lot of opinions I should be killed and I feel I deserve it. My responsibility is mine and God will be my judge when I die. I am telling you this because I will be responsible for these crimes and no one else. It all started when I wondered what it would be like to kill someone. And I found out. What a nightmare it has been. I had sent a letter to Washington County Judges Criminal Court taking responsibility to number one, the Bennett murder, but nothing had been in your paper. This freedom of pre press, you have the ball. I will be reading to find out. I used gloves and some paper as a last, as last letter, no prints. Look over your shoulder, I may be closer than you think. So he signed off every page with a little, like little smiley faces, little happy faces, so the people knew that it was the same man as the restroom on the wall and every note. He thought he was being very clever with these little happy faces. So, I mean, just a quick little <laughs> analysis of these notes. It's obviously him. I don't know. It's not obviously, but the way that I look at it, he's trying to sound like he can't help himself. My dude, you can help yourself. You didn't have to do any of this. You know, like you get people who are alcoholics and they stop drinking and they don't drink. They want to, but they stop. You don't like, I really want to stop, but I'm not going to. And he doesn't stop for a long time. He just carries on. So all of this is like this little like pity party. Oh, I really want to stop, but I can't. No, Keith, you can. Anyway, 
At the end of 1993, Keith started wondering about why he was the way that he was, so he did some research and he read some magazines, and he saw that one of the FBI profilers had written that serial killers often displayed a trio of traits, that is, killing animals, setting fires, and peeing in the bed. He did kill animals as a child, and he also loved setting fires, but he didn't wet the bed. So he thought that maybe setting fires would maybe, you know, calm his mind now as an adult. So he started setting fires that got bigger and bigger for the thrill. He like got to the point where he was burning down massive areas and he said that the arson was almost as addictive as killing. So he would burn something, call the cops and wait for them to come and then he would watch like the fire department put out his fire. He also started getting into firecrackers and he would shoot the firecrackers at people who just annoyed him. And like, I mean, he was like still a small child on the inside. That's something a little boy would do. But this small reprieve from his murdering cravings like didn't last very long. It was about a year, and then he started to fantasize about rape and murder again, and it would not be long until he acted on those fantasies. Near the end of 1994, he was doing a job in Florida where he picked up a young lady that he said looked like a gypsy or a fortune teller. He said she was in her 30s, and he thought that she said her name was Suzanne or Susanna. He wasn't quite sure. He said that he would take her to Reno where she could get another lift to get her to where she was going, and she agreed. When they stopped to rest, she said that it was okay to sleep in the same bed as long as they kept their clothes on. And in the middle of the night, Keith awoke and he felt, you know, like when you're spooning someone, he felt her bum against his crotch and then he got super turned on. So he got naked and he put his arms around her and she woke up screaming because, I mean, if you wake up and there's this giant man next to you that's now naked, I would also wake up screaming. And then at that point, he threatened her telling telling her to to fuck him like she means it or he would hurt her so they had sex for a few hours and when you know he tried to have sex with her again she screamed again so he he choked her to death he hid her body in okaloosa county in some bushes off the side of the road and to make sure that people knew that it was his kill he had tied two 14 inch plastic ties you know the zip tie things around her neck you know just like a little calling card so that people would know on the night of the 20th of January 1995, so what, five years after killing at uh, Tonya, Keith was put up in a hotel in Spokane by his trucking company because his truck caught on fire or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. So while he sat in the lounge having a drink, a woman named Angela Subreeze came in and started drinking a beer. They struck up a conversation and Keith invited her back to his room. Angela told Keith that she was a stripper and that she could give him a good show, and then they had sex that night. Keith left for work the next morning, and he told Angela his company name and that she should call and leave her number, and later that day, she did exactly that. She gave the company a call, left, the, left her number, and he called her back. They decided they would that she would ride with him for a few days, and then he picked her up. They traveled for a few days, they had a lot of sex, they had a good time, he said. And then when they stopped in Wyoming, Angela used Keith's credit card to call her dad on the payphone because she was supposed to be visiting her dad. And he told her that he didn't want to see her anymore. So she then called her ex-boyfriend and suddenly repaired their relationship. And she told Keith that plans had changed and now she was on her way to her current, like her boyfriend. Her, she was her ex, they fixed things. She was on her way to her boyfriend. boyfriend. And Keith was annoyed by this. But he got even more annoyed when she told him that she thought that she was pregnant and that she was going to get her boyfriend to have a lot of sex with her, make him believe that the baby was his. So Keith then realized that if her boyfriend didn't buy it, 
she would say that he was the father because they had also had a lot of sex. And this, like, really irritated him. It infuriated him. He felt used all over again. So he carried on driving, but the weather was bad, so he had to take it super slowly. And she kept, like, rushing him. She's like, oh, I've got to get there. We've got to get there. Come, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And this was another thing you just didn't do with Keith. You didn't demand him to do anything. Like, you don't rush Keith. Don't put baby in a corner. No? <laughs> so on the night, like, like, that night that he decided to kill her... They had sex a few times and then he taped her up. She tried to get her pepper spray but he had found it in her purse earlier and he had taken it out because he knew that this was the day that he was going to kill her. He told her that he was going to play the death game with her and that is exactly what he did. He made her pass out four or five times until he finally killed her. He then fell asleep for about four hours with the body next to him and when he woke up he put her body in a plastic bag and started to panic. People had seen the two of them together and she had used his credit card to make calls. So he decided he needed to get rid of all the identifying markers on her so that the police would not be able to tell who she was. He drove to a McDonald's, ordered um, two meals, and then he drove to a place that was quiet so that he could do what needed, like, what he needed to do with the body. Uh, this entire time he did speak to her corpse as though she was like still there and he told her that she deserved it and all this kind of terrible stuff like just the worst stuff and on the 23rd of january at 3 a.m keith taped angela's hands in front of her body and then he laid her body facing down on the pavement tied a rope around her ankles and to a bar under his truck between the middle wheels so that passing cars would not see her body being dragged under the truck and he did this so that her face and fingerprints would be ground off as he drove so that no one could identify her so he then started driving and he drove for about 12 miles at 60 65 miles an hour so that's about 20 kilometers at about 100 kilometers per hour when he stopped to check on his victim she was missing a shoulder a thigh her chest was broken open her guts had come out her arms and hands were gone and her face was ground up to her ears it was an effective way of getting rid of identifying markers i'll tell you that much think about it think about how rough the roads are like do you remember falling off your bike or skateboard as a kid and you got like a little roasty that was probably at like max 15 kilometers per hour like over 10 meters maybe anyway he then decided he like would dump what was left of her body in the bushes and he got rid of her clothes a couple of miles away the rest of her body parts that were in the road he said looked just like roadkill so he wasn't even worried about that how disgusting is that what kind of sicko Ugh. ew i mean how do you not have nightmares at night because he now had to take her like take what was left of her body and look at it and 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 pick it up and throw it in the bushes how does that not haunt you i cannot be like i cannot believe that somebody did this and didn't have nightmares forever i i mean have you ever picked up a cat that's been hit by a car it's the most depressing thing in the world you have to pick the poor little body up and move it to the side of the road and it's just like it's 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 depressing now this is a human being that you've just murdered and you've just dragged under your car like it's a piece of meat it's ugh, disgusting disgusting human i'm just ugh. so he did say that he was disgusted in himself after this murder just because 
yeah, I think it was a bit of a pity party again. He said that he wanted to commit suicide because he like he was sure that he was going to get caught soon and he didn't want his kids to know that he was a serial killer. But then he didn't because he was a coward. And he also decided, you know what, actually I'm having kind of fun, so I'm just going to carry on with this. So, I mean, w- what? It just doesn't make sense. And that's the thing, he had this internal struggle. He had this, I'm so bad, I must kill myself, but also I'm having the most fun, so I'm not going to. And that's like, it's, I don't understand. I, I don't get it. So, two months after he killed Angela, Keith was back in Oregon, and he bumped into his old girlfriend, Julie. Julie Winningham, who he had broken up with like a year and a half earlier. So once again, he let his dick make the decisions, and he decided that he would not mind getting back with her. But he also had nefarious plans. He was like, I'm going to get back for her, but then I'm going to make her my sex slave. But Julie also had plans that were not just for love. She needed cash, and she knew that she could get Keith to pay for things. So when they got back together, she asked Keith to pay $700 for a DWI, drinking under the influence, I think, uh, fine that she got. And he was like, okay. You know, he was sort of testing the waters. So then after that, they went and they partied it up, whole bunch of drinking, lots of sex. Julie proposed to Keith, who just said yes to sort of see where things would go. So they were now fiancés. Is that how you say it? Fiancés? They were bound to be wed, if you will. Anyway, they rode together for a few days and Julie kept adding things to what she needed Keith to pay for. Her car was broken, she owed money, etc, etc. And one night when Julie went out drinking, Keith played some cribbage, which he enjoyed playing. I don't even know what cribbage is, but he liked to play it. And then he went to sleep in his truck, which was parked near Washougal. No idea where that is. And when she got back into the truck, they had sex, and then she told Keith that it was his fault that her car needed replacing, so he owed her money for that, and that she actually had two two DWIs and needed more than the $700 she had asked for earlier in the week. Actually, she needed $2,000 to be more precise. She said that because they were engaged, he had to help her out, and this is when Keith started to get real angry. He saw it that she was not in love with him, but she was just there for his money. He said no, and she threatened to accuse him of raping her. He threatened her and then strangled her until she passed out. He taped her arms behind her back and gagged her. Then he started heading east. When she woke up, Keith played terrible mind games with her and he also told her all of the terrible things that he had done. He played the death game with her until she died. He did many terrible things to these poor women and I'm I'm not going into the detail because it's too much to say out loud. But if you do want to read it, it's in that book. He goes into tormenting detail and it's just the stuff that these poor women went through in their last moments is something that nobody should ever have to go through so he drove to a spot down highway 14 near columbia gorge and he dumped her body down an embankment only about 15 feet from the road ish roundabout he considered moving her deeper into the like bush but he never actually did it by monday the 13th of march three days after killing julie winningham Keith was in Ogden, Utah. He picked up some stuff for a mine in New Mexico and he headed that way. He was now at this point feeling super paranoid because he knew that people knew that him and Julie were together. And on the 17th of March, he was crossing the Arkansas-Texas border and he said that the way the guy spoke to him sounded suspicious, like on the phone, his dispatcher 
like he thought that there were cops everywhere. He had this like feeling that he was being followed, and he just like had this this vibe that his dispatcher was being dodgy. But he was like, okay, now I'm gonna carry on. But I do feel like everyone's being weird. So when he got to the truck stop in Deming, 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 anyway, after dropping off the load for the mine, he called his dispatcher to ask for his next job. And for the first time, they said that they would let him know when and what his next load would be and that he must stay where he is, basically. And he was like, they've never done that before. So he decided that while he waited to hear back from them, he would wash his truck. And when he got to the truck stop for the the next truck stop he noticed a black and red car there with a man that was looking at him so keith was freaking out at this point and rightfully so eventually dispatch called and told him that his next load was at las cruces fairgrounds and as he arrived at the basically deserted place the same red and black car pulled up and told him which gate to go to so it's like like alarm bells are going off in keith's head he's like oh shit So once Keith had parked and got out of the truck, he asked like where the load was. And that's when two detectives stepped out with their guns drawn and ready. Keith acted dumb at first, obviously. He thought he might still be able to get away with it. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they were like, you're, you know, we want to question you on Julie Whittingham's death. She was your fiance. And he was like, oh, that, that chick, she's just wild. Like I didn't, how did she die? Oh no. And he said that, the last time they had fought about something he kicked her out of the truck and he never saw her after that so the main detective was detective rick buckner and he kept asking keith why he killed julie and keith kept saying he didn't so they didn't have any evidence really at this point they were just kind of grasping at straws but they did take his dna and some things from his truck to process for evidence but they let him go until they could find like proper evidence so after all the questioning keith decided he needed to commit suicide he was like i don't want to go through like the death penalty i i can't run i'm such a big person people would spot me really easily so he was like no i have to commit suicide so he went to a truck stop in las cruces and he bought a bunch of pills that he would swallow together and try and kill himself he drank a handful of pills but he did not die he just passed out and woke up a few hours like a couple hours later all the all confused looking like crap he felt like crap so he tried to do it again and again he just had a really deep sleep. What happened was he had vomited when he passed out, so he didn't die. The next day he went to Phoenix for another load, because at this point he had been taken off of the like cannot work list. And while he was there, he ate a steak and gave the waitress a gold necklace as a tip, and he told her that he was going to prison and that he didn't need it. He then bought two bottles of non-prescription sleeping tablets and tried to drink them all, and again, he just fell asleep and he woke up hours later. He then thought, okay, you know what? There's a mountain range right here. I'm going to walk up to where the snow line is and I'm going to freeze to death. That's that's what I'm going to do. But first, he wrote his brother, Brad, a letter. That letter goes as follows. It has the date, 3-24-95. Hi, Brad. Seems like my luck has run out. I will never be able to enjoy life on the outside again. I got into a bad situation and got caught up with emotion. I killed a woman in my truck during an argument. With all the evidence against me, it looks like I am truly am a black sheep. The court will appoint me a lawyer and there will be a trial. I am sure they will kill me for this. I am sorry that I turned out this way. I have been a killer for five years and I have killed eight people, assaulted more. I guess I haven't learned anything. Dad always worried about me because of what I have gone through in the divorce, finances, etc. I have been taking it out on different people. We pay so much of child support. As I saw it, 
I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night and I wake up well rested. The night before, I took two bottles of pills to no avail. They will arrest me today. Keith. He dropped the letter in the post box and he left to go and hike up his mountain to die. He eventually got to the top and he sat there in the snow for a while and while he was sitting there he had a moment of manliness and he decided he couldn't keep doing this and that he needed to tell the cops. He ran down the mountain, drove to a payphone and called Detective Rick Buckner and told him that he had killed Julie Winningham. They took Keith to be questioned and they threw him in prison to hold him. He was placed under suicide watch because he had tried to commit suicide three times in the past 24 hours. He thought that he would only admit to killing Julie and not the others. But then he remembered sending sending that letter to Brad and he panicked. So when he was eventually allowed to call Brad, he asked him to get rid of the letter. But Brad had already handed it over to the cops. Ooh. His brother had betrayed him. Oh no, how dare you, Brad. <laughs> That's how he felt on the inside, I'm sure. So he was very upset, obviously. He was like, damn it, Brad. Why'd you go do that? I mean... Dumbass, you're the one who wrote the letter in the first place. Anyway. So now there was the small problem of Laverne and John, the two who were arrested for Tonya Bennett's murder. They were still in prison. And Keith eventually just spilled the beans and he had said that he had done it. But when the cops took him to like show them where the body was dumped, he was quite far off. Way further off than when like what Laverne had been. She said she had seen it in the newspaper and they had pretty much told people exactly where the body was found. And with Keith, he had committed the murder almost six years earlier, so his memory was a little rusty. He told them that he had written the happy face letters, and that he was the one who had killed all the women. But for some reason, the cops were still a bit hesitant to believe him. I think they just didn't want to admit that they had the wrong people in prison. You know, like, cops are like that. They're like, oh no, we've gone through this whole thing. We How are we gonna... Ugh, it's gonna look real bad, you know? Oh no. So eventually, Keith mentioned the purse of Tonya Bennett which they had never found and he mentioned where he had thrown it so the cops went to that area and they searched it and eventually they found her ID in that area and they knew that he was not lying and he was the one who had actually killed her the cops were forced to release Laverne and John and Keith was officially found guilty guilty of murdering Tonya Bennett with the other victims they actually went into each different state or jurisdiction and they found that, that they were victims matching almost everything. And like he was able to give details that weren't released to the press. So like um, when he stood on the one victim's throat, there was a shoe print left behind and like that wasn't released. And he said, I stood on her throat. So they were like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, this is definitely the guy. So although at one point he claimed, <laughs> this is the other thing. So... In the trial, it was a mess. He was not just in the trial, just in general. He kept telling people different things. So at one point, he claimed to have had as many as 160 victims. But the eight women were killed in California, Florida, Nebraska, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming. Those were the ones who were confirmed. And he is currently serving three consecutive life sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. And I think he actually may have been moved to California. But anyway, besides the point, he is set to be eligible for parole on the 1st of March, 2063, a month before his 108th birthday. So he will not be getting out of prison anytime soon. When he was handed his sentence, he didn't show much emotion. And he actually made some sick joke with the judge. 
So psychologists and psychiatrists all agree that he most likely has antisocial personality disorder, is a sociopath or a psychopath. So yeah, that's that's what he he currently apparently does some art in prison, which like, you know, don't don't do that. He's there's a whole bunch of letters that were written between him and his father that are in the book as well. And they're just like really difficult to read they're just it's just the most bizarre situation that he's obviously got some heavy daddy issues so may he rot in prison basically is what i'm trying to say so that's keith hunter jesperson the happy face killer he is a messed up human being and i think he might be one of my worst like i really 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 dislike him a lot i don't I don't have any time for him. I don't have any, like, I don't, I don't. I, if you read the book, you'll see why I dislike him so much. The way that he speaks about women and how he feels so sorry for himself. It's just, it's so painful to read. Like, it's like, get over yourself, my guy, please. Also, another thing, if Laverne had not lied to the police and been so convincing, they may have caught him sooner and a lot of lives could have been saved. I mean, I get that she was in a terrible situation, but that does not mean that it is okay to interfere with the law in the way that she did. I mean, this Puatani was obviously going through a sh- like a really crap time, but don't do stuff like that. Do not falsely accuse people of murder. It messes up everything. It takes time away from finding the real murderer of the real victims, because every victim is a real victim. So anyway, that's just my little rant about that and I just found it quite funny so one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is called Morbid and they have mentioned in a couple of their episodes that um, truckers are normally the nicest guys and like a lot of people who are actual murderers will accuse their wives or girlfriends or whatever of running off with a trucker when they've actually killed them and they were saying that like they've never like they've never met a terrible trucker in their lives or what 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 and like obviously Keith is is one of those <laughs> really bad eggs bad egg so anyway if you enjoyed this episode please rate it and give me a review these really help the show grow organically it'll take you two minutes please do it thank you and you know I would really appreciate it also follow me on Instagram at cup of taboo underscore podcast or on Facebook you can just search for cup of taboo you can pop me an email if you have any suggestions or maybe if you'd like to be a guest cupoftaboo at gmail.com is the place for that or you can go and subscribe on youtube i'll be putting up more videos soon uh i just have to figure out how i'm gonna like make them (laughs) we'll get there though we'll be yeah we're working on it um i will also be interviewing a few more guests soon so stay tuned for that one is a stripper so that's gonna be fun yeah come back next week for a new episode stay hydrated and happy my friends and don't get into trucks with strangers also if a man says that he's forgotten his wallet at home do not go home with him thank you okay bye Thank <laughs> you.